This is Do Good and Do Well with me, Sarah Fox, the podcast where we explore how you can help make positive change in the world without losing yourself. Hello and welcome to Do Good and Do Well. How are you today? I am delighted to introduce you, if you don't know them already, to the brilliant Claire Antrobus and Sandeep Mahal. The three of us had a conversation, which you are about to hear, all about co-leadership. What it is, what are the benefits of co-leadership, and what are some of the concerns that people might have about it, and if you're interested, what to do next. So let me tell you a little bit about Claire and Sandy. Claire Antrobus works as a leadership coach and trainer. She is passionate about developing more diversity in leadership and developing leaders. She also recently qualified as a mountain leader, a role through which she's broadening access to the outdoors and helping people connect with nature and care for our planet. Claire is mum to two teenagers, a green runner, and she lives in York in the UK. Sandeep Mahal is a senior management consultant in the arts. Her 20 plus year career spans both creative and executive leadership roles, including at Nottingham UNESCO City of Literature and the digital arts commissioning agency, The Space. Sandeep joined the Royal Shakespeare Company's senior leadership team as a leadership associate in January 2022, part of the RSC's commitment to diversify the voices guiding their decision making at the highest level. Sandeep also runs the Office for Leadership Transition at People Make It Work, where she supports cultural organisations to reshape, develop and embed inclusive leadership models that deliver their change visions and strategies. Sandeep currently serves on the boards of the Women's Prize Trust, World Book Day and Javant Patel Dance Company. Let's get into it. Enjoy. Hello, Claire and Sandy. Welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. How are you both today? A bit hot, but it's great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, really, really pleased to be here. And um, pleased to be here with Sandy as well. Yeah, it's not, this is my first podcast recording with two people. So this this is that this is good this is innovation for the do good and do well podcast um and it is really hot we are recording this the 16th of june which is apparently going to be one of the hottest days so hopefully we can keep going with energy throughout this episode well welcome um i would love for you both to introduce yourselves tell us who you are what do you want us to know about you uh, shall we start with sandy Thank you so much, um, Sarah. Um, so, hello, I'm uh, Sandeep Mahal. Uh, I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company Senior Leadership Team as a Leadership Associate in January 2022. And I work alongside Justine Taman, who was also recruited as a Leadership Associate at the same time. And our roles were recruited as part of the RSC's commitment to diversifying the voices that guide their decision making at the highest level. And we can, I'm sure we'll get into the detail of that as we begin to unpack um, the co-leadership model that, that has emerged.
emerged um, as a result. But alongside my um, RSC role, I'm Director of Sector Change at People Make It Work, where I support cultural organisations to um, shape, develop and uh, embed culture that deliver their change visions and um, strategies. And a big part of that is about achieving greater representation and uh, positive change at senior levels within the cultural sector. And when I when I think about how that how I came to this sort of desire and passion for changing who gets to lead, um, my background is in what is working in community libraries. So that's where I started my career 25 years ago, working in very diverse communities and a variety of outreach and engagement roles to widen access and participation um, in libraries. And um, it was about cultivating a culture of reading and writing in socially deprived areas. And, and I've worked nationally as well with the book publishing industry. And then I went back into community literature and literacy projects. So my passion has always been about spreading the sheer creative joy and power of stories as a movement for change. And I've always been motivated by like a social ambition as well alongside mm. that artistic um, vision that is to create a more inclusive world where amplifying diverse stories and diverse talent is not just accepted, but actively pursued. And it's what I've done throughout my, my working life. So that's where my passion and I think my experience really intersect and my work now is so much about helping um, boards and cultural leaders to combat that underrepresentation um, in the arts in their organizations by supporting them to push forward their diversity equity and inclusion agendas um, we're seeing so much good intention, um, but not enough concrete action. Um, so I love, I love collaborating and and guiding them to sort of implement their intentions for structural and systemic change because that's that's what it requires. And it's been really wonderful for me to be able to collaborate with Claire um, on leadership transition projects. And I think her research, which I'm sure she'll talk about, is so timely um, given the context that we're in. Um, we are seeing so many leadership transitions. So yeah, really look forward to talking about that too. So that's me. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate you talking about that, you know, that drive and that passion and what it is you want to achieve. And yeah, I think there is so much positive intention. People really want to be doing this stuff, but there's a bit of stuckness around, well, but how, how do I do this in a way that feels aligned with values, that feels good. And uh, for those of you listening, I'm about to do air quotes, but feels right. Um, whatever right looks like. Thank you. Claire, how about you? Hi. Uh, well, thanks, Sarah, for inviting us on. It's it's great that your first co your first double guest episode is about co-leadership, isn't it? It's very <laughs> fitting. Um, so I'm I'm a these days I'm a leadership coach and trainer. And I, I'd say most of my work is about developing leaders and diversity in leadership. Um and I do that independently. And I also do it through People Make It Work, which is how I met Sandeep about 18 months ago now. So we worked together on, initially worked together on a leadership transition project, helping a small arts organisation think about how it wanted to move on after its founders were, one of whom was ready to leave. And on what emerged was that this organisation suited co-leadership. So Sandy and I were talking a lot about co-leadership earlier last year, and I had done 
research about a decade before when I was a CLAW fellow. I was really, I'd come across co-leadership in theatre and my background's in visual arts and I hadn't come across it before. I was really interested in, in why we weren't using it more widely and what it could offer. And back then I had two really tiny kids. They're now enormous. In fact, today my son's just finished his GCSEs, but back then they were two and three. And I, I was in leadership roles in galleries and museums, but there was no flexibility. But it was 60 hour weeks minimum. And I had to leave that role. I loved my role, but I had to leave it because that wasn't the, the working pattern I wanted when my kids were that age. So I've been interested in co-leadership for a long time. And Sandy and I started talking about it last year. So when Claw Leadership um, had this kind of opportunity, they had some grants last year with Arts and Humanities Research Council to, to enable people to do a bit more research. Um, I asked Sandy if she'd be involved and I put in this research proposal to look particularly at co-leadership and diversity. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about it then. In terms of who I am, just to also mention, I have recently qualified as, as Sarah knows, you're laughing, as a mountain leader, um, Amazing. which I always thought is bizarre. Yeah. I was like, this is my hobby, but it's actually aligning with my work as well, because I've got my first paid mountain leader job in a few weeks. And I'm working with a, a charity called Millimeters to Mountains, which is about helping people who've experienced trauma, experience the outdoors as part of their recovery. Um, and I've got into that through working with a really, really inspirational coach who herself has made that journey. So, um, so yeah, I'm now helping broaden access to the outdoors and connect people with the outdoors and the planet, which is a big passion of mine. And like Sandy, you know, I've got a background which means I'm interested in and committed to diversity. I grew up in a, in an area of Sheffield where it's what it currently is part of this awful blue wall we've got up in the north of England. But um, I grew up with people who didn't go to galleries and museums, didn't go to theatre. People who I went to school with, culture wasn't part of our life for class reasons. And so I think ever since I've been involved in the arts, it's been about increasing access to the arts, um, cultural democracy. And my first job was a curator at Yorkshire Sculpture Park, where most people came because of the park, not because of the art, but hopefully we engaged them with art whilst they were there. Um, so, yeah, I'm now the mum of two teenagers um, and I live in York. Um, that's me. Lovely. Amazing. I'm so, I just, I love that, the mountaineering. I think, you know, so often our work you know, or, or our, our jobs, our businesses, our roles, they can really take over our whole lives and finding the thing, the other things that bring you joy as well. It's just so lovely to hear that that's possible. And actually, everything's pretty much connected in a way. My first question to you, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm posing this to Claire first. For those of us that don't know, I mean, it sounds obvious what co-leadership is when you say it, but what is it? What is this thing that we're talking about today? So, well, I think there's a, I think there's a really practical descriptive answer to that. And I think there's a, there's a more important answer to it, actually. So I'll go with important first. I think co-leadership is about enabling diversity and collaboration and flexibility to be at the core of your organisational culture and by embedding it in your leadership structure. That's what I think it's about. One of the co-leaders I interviewed was a really inspiring woman called Duella Jackson, and she, she kind of described it like this she said it's about a leadership style which challenges 
the traditional notions we've got about leadership, that it's one person, it's usually a man, usually a white man, and it's about this great man. And she says, no, it's about co-leadership as a collective effort, sharing power, resources and responsibility. And I think that's what it is. Um, and I think what excites me about it is I think it can be a more effective way to run an organisation, especially the complex organisations and businesses we're running today. And we're seeing this coming up in the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. A lot of tech companies use co-leadership. It's popular in healthcare and education as well as in the kind of complex nonprofits that we run. So I think it's a really good way to run a business. In fact, I was interviewing last, uh, last month a woman who runs Yorkshire Tea and Betty's Tea Rooms, and, and they've been using it for years. So they think it mm -hmm. makes commercial sense. But I think co-leadership, what excites me is as a leadership coach and working in a sector where we've got a real problem with a lack of diversity in terms of ethnicity, disability, class, gender in the arts, it makes leadership a more attractive proposition to much wider range of people. Um, practically, I would define co-leadership as a structure where more than one person is involved in a role where you've got equal authority and shared responsibility and it's highly collaborative. So it's not about dividing a job in two. Mm -hmm. But those co-leaders usually have slightly different roles. So there'll be some areas of overlap. I sometimes describe it like a Venn diagram. So there's some stuff in the middle that both of them share, but there's usually some differentiated responsibilities because at the heart of it, you've got difference. That's why it's useful is you've got different perspectives, different skills, different backgrounds. And that's why it's brilliant because we know from wider research difference diversity if it's as long as it's well managed it produces better results whether that's in two people or a team or an organization or a society diversity makes us better makes us stronger and co-leadership's a microcosm of that so it's about shared values but different styles different people and it can often people say is co-leadership always a job share it can be and it really enables flexible working but it doesn't have to be it could be two full-time people or two part-time people but it's often a feature of it but i don't think it's defined as has to be job sharing has to be okay. part-time yeah that's interesting yeah. sandy yeah yeah i i think that's um really clear descriptor and to say that it doesn't have to be a fixed fully formed concept that you enact on um say at the beginning of a recruitment process or on day one it can emerge like it did for me at, at the rsa so despite not knowing justine tayman before i started you know we were recruited separately independently that decision to collaborate closely emerged quite quickly uh, like a, a few months of us starting, we were initially tasked with co-delivering a major strategic uh, consultation, which meant that we needed to be able to work together very closely, to work well together and at pace. Um, and I just saw firsthand like the value of collective thinking, of having the conversations, of collaborating. So we both inclined towards co-leadership. It just became very obvious. And that wasn't the way that we were 
contracted formally by the RSC. So I think that's really interesting that you can think about it at the beginning of a recruitment process when you're beginning to think about designing your leadership model, but it can also emerge. Um, so I think there are some fundamental things that you need to have in place. Of course, Justin and I didn't know each other. It does take time to build that trust and that mutual respect. And so, yeah, we took, we took that time. Um, and and for me, I had been thinking about co-leadership in the way that Claire has described as we were beginning to emerge from lockdown. I was like, uh, we need a different way of leading because this job of cultural leader is now so big for one person, given everything that we had experienced. You know, no single individual has all the answers. We need a more shared collaborative distributed leadership model that responds directly to that context, that context that emerged during the pandemic, during the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's it's so vital, I think, to this conversation because I think that context is, is crucial. It brought to the surface all kinds of um, systemic inequalities and vulnerabilities in our society and in our sector. Our, our eyes were opened up. Um, to those challenges and 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 to this idea that actually we so need to do things differently. Um, and, and Claire, actually, I've always loved um, the description from Uella and Jess that they've talked about. Um, so they're co-directors of Rising Arts in Bristol. And um, they describe co-leadership as a direct challenge to the traditional, um, often masculine ideas of hierarchies mm. and leadership. Um, and so they see co-leadership as a community effort. It's it's bigger than a single individual um, and it is about, um, as Clara said, a sharing of power, of resources, of responsibility and accountability. And, and they're really modelling that. And I'd love to see more of that because I think it's I think it's a really powerful thing, actually, to take that community approach and effort. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've been working with a coach called Kerry Jarvis and she supports people on their businesses, but how to make it feminist. And as you were talking then, I thought this is a really feminist approach. It's anti-capitalist, it's anti-racist, it's anti-ableist. Hearing that sense of collaboration, shared responsibility, um, support for each other. And it, it was so lovely hearing you talk, Sandy, about because that could be quite scary if you're going, you know, I know that you were contracted to do something different, but even working alongside someone so closely who you don't know, <laughs> you know, the, the fear of, are we going to get on? Are we going to understand each other? Are we going to share the same values? And then for that to come together and for you to see that actually this is a path that you were both really up for and wanting to test and try and this is where, yeah, the context is really crucial because Justine and I are the only brown and black people on the senior leadership team. Um, so there is something about um, providing that practical and moral support. We're not the only ones. You know, we have each other's backs. Um, and that has been incredible. Like that generosity, mm -hmm. that level of support, um, kind of emotional support, has has been really crucial and as as i said that sort of thing takes time but became quite apparent quite early on as well mm. so can you share 
your experiences in more depth of, of co-leadership you know what have you witnessed what have you seen what have you experienced we'd love to hear more about that mine's fairly short because mine's kind of secondhand mainly um so I'll, I'll leave sandy to say more about it but i think my own direct experience is i worked alongside the early co-leaders in the visual arts sector um it, who were at tate tate liverpool tate and ice back in about 2010, 2011, 2012, and then went into a role myself at MEMA, Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art, as co-leader. And it was a full-time role. I think technically it was four days a week, but it was six years <laughs> in those four days. And as I said, you know, with young kids, that just did not work for me. Um, and But it struck me, this is just such a ripe model for flexibility and job sharing. And I cast around, and I was like, why aren't people doing this? This makes sense. And I think Something about the pandemic has, has enabled this, the flexible working from home, the flexibility of hours and the need for change, something shifted. So it was mainly for me is through the interviewees who I've, who I've worked with, but also talking to, to leaders as, as a leadership coach who said the role is, they, they've left roles because of burnout, because being that solo leader has been not, compatible with caring responsibilities with their own mental health or sadly more and more people who tell me they they deselect themselves from ever going from those roles in the first place because they don't see those roles being attractive or doable for for themselves those leadership roles so I was facilitating action learning sets for the Western Jewel creative bursary holders at this time last year fantastic group of individuals with a huge amount to offer the sector and they were saying after their placements they didn't want to carry on working in the sector some of them because they didn't see themselves as progressing into leadership roles because of their experiences so my my experience has been primarily hearing other people so I'll hand over to Sandy to talk a bit more about hers. Yeah, thank you, Claire. I, I suppose the idea of co-leadership really appealed to me, and I know Justine as well, as leaders of change around diversity and inclusion. Um, and for me, I'd I'd lived through quite an emotional breakup from my previous role as the founding director of um, Nottingham UNESCO City of Literature. So that was a startup. It was founded in 2016. Um, and running a startup, as you'll know, is, is is hard enough. But two years in, we were on a really positive trajectory of engagement, of youth empowerment, of creating joy and making a difference in a city that is so young, so diverse, so vibrant. Like the opportunity was 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 there um, for the taking, and it was it was just the most glorious time. And then four years into that role, the pandemic strikes all of us like a like a bolt of lightning, um, stopping us in our tracks, um, having to really pivot and respond to that emergency to support communities in that time of great need. And, and you know, like many others leading cultural organisations at that time, like leading people and resources, it was just exhausting, you know, and um, like I said earlier, I just thought I really want to work in a different way, um, this way of leading and working as a single 
director is just not sustainable for me. Um, and also because during that time, like for so many others, experienced family bereavement. I'd moved away to be closer to my mother-in-law who was getting quite ill. And so my caring responsibilities had um, increased uh, tenfold. So I really needed a, a more flexible way of working. So the appeal, I think, was really there for co-leadership. I just... I just couldn't see how I could run an organization like Nottingham City of Literature, which is relatively small, as um, in that traditional single leader way. So, yeah, I began to advocate for that co-leadership as an answer to a more inclusive, a more flexible, care-fueled leadership model that responds to my needs, mm. um, that supports people like me to stay in a job that I love, but also opens up the model to other aspiring leaders to join um, a, a shared leadership endeavor who might want to be in a collaborative relationship with another leader. And the sad truth is that my decision to leave Nottingham in, in, in 2021 was in direct response to wanting that greater equity and inclusion through a co-leadership structure, but it was perceived by the board as a risk at that time, um, they just weren't ready. And I and I really had to accept that, you know, and, and walk away. I just don't think there was that level of awareness that there is now. Um, the fact that Claire has opened up a sector conversation about co-leadership, I think, is, is, is fantastic. We're seeing more young, diverse leaders modelling co-leadership. And to be able to talk about the benefits of collaborating much more closely, the benefits of knowledge and skills sharing across the artistic and, and final aspects of leadership, discovering new skills, actually, as well, around co-creation, around transparency and accountability and quite frankly it's the benefits of it feeling less scary less anxious inducing less lonely um it's done absolutely wonders for my own well-being and development i love co-leadership and being part of an organization that is fully supportive of it that understands it um, it's not something they'd set out to do on the course right now. We do have um, new artistic leadership here in Daniel Evans and Tamara Harvey, who are modeling a co-artistic leadership model. And I love the fact that actually what we're doing is normalizing it. Um, so, yeah, um, mm. that's that's what I've witnessed and experienced. Mm, thank you. I, I suppose I just wanted to take a moment because you said something there about I wanted to be working in a way that also met my own needs. <laughs> and I think so often through my own experiences, through working with others, our own needs are, are often put to the side. It's about the organisational needs, everybody else's needs apart from our own. And it's really, this isn't... <laughs> This isn't a, a strong enough word, but really lovely to hear, actually, what if, you know, what if we put our needs in the middle, right in the middle and said, and let's start from what we need first and then see what else comes from that. And I suppose I wanted to acknowledge how hard that must have been to say, actually, I'm not going to get my needs met there, so I'm going to move on because they're so I think often it's easier to stay where we are we want to stay safe even if there's lots of discomfort and so to be able to, to say no you know actually I feel like there's something different here 
and that and then hearing that you found something different that where you are your well-being needs are being met it's just really fantastic I wanted to yeah, yeah. take a moment to say that that that's so much about inclusion and equity um, as well. So, you know, we know co-leadership as a model is fantastic for enabling greater diversity at senior leadership levels. We, we're seeing that, but we can't talk about um, increasing that diversity in our organizations without inclusion. You know, we've seen diversity schemes come and go. We've seen knee-jerk reactions to increasing diversity in organizations through tokenistic or um, performative diversity hires. Younger diverse leaders are not standing for that. You know, yeah. they absolutely see through that. So what we're seeing, I think, is younger leaders coming through who are not hanging about, waiting for organizations to work out what their identity is. They're like, actually, what I'm really interested in is how are you going to adapt and enable inclusive conditions for diverse leaders to thrive? So I feel like people who... I think we know that having representation in the room is not enough. Mm. Um, we absolutely need to create the conditions for diverse leadership to really thrive. And I think it's particularly pertinent to, to co-leadership as well. So in thinking about the conditions for that we're creating for that co-leadership to flourish, we need to think about, well, what sort of experience do we want these co-leaders to have? Um, when they're, when they're in the organization? How do they feel when they're in the room? How are we creating the, the conditions that engender a sense of belonging, a feeling of connection and of being valued for the unique things that co-leaders bring to an organization and bring to, to a community? I feel like it's a really vital aspect for boards and executive teams to get right. And again, it takes time to, to really unpack and explore that environment that is very much guided and led by value. So that values conversation is really, really important. So, and I think as well, alongside inclusion, we also need to think about equity because that's when individual needs do come into play. And I think equity is also useful conceptually because I think more people are on board with it. So there's, you know, I, I look at equity and I often talk about it as having two powers. So the first power is about, we want to treat people equally. Everybody gets behind that. And the second power is that equity is inherently context aware to the individual. So while equality just says, let's give everybody the same thing, equity says, give everybody what they need. And that means making adjustments to the traditional hierarchies. Um, and so, you know, when I think that's where we get a lot less resistance, if we were to start with that conversation around what is it that you need, we're, we're taking a much more equitable approach. And it could mean challenging our own processes and systems and structures. And it's why then I think diversity and inclusion feels much more achievable if we were to start with equity um, and having a really laser-like focus on, on equity. Claire, I don't know if you have more thoughts around some of those conditions that enable co-leadership to really thrive. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm noticing as you're saying that, Sandy, how solutions-focused you are about those conditions and making it happen. And um, I suppose the thing that I was aware of with Sarah's comment is it isn't easy because I think what we're doing is going against 
a lot of cultural norms around leadership. So in the research, I was asking people things like, um, so I did some surveys of people in the sector and what it threw up was just how embedded our norms are around we must sacrifice ourselves. Leaders don't have work-life balance. Those kind of thoughts are very much there. So I think I absolutely endorse everything that Sandy said about starting from this. We've got to change a lot and we've got to change the culture of, of leadership. And that's why, you know, it comes back to my first point about what it is. It's about changing the culture by changing the structure and really embedding equity at the heart of how we do things um yeah I really liked what you said then because I think pe people can get on board board with that it's it chimes with lots of people's values about um like all those pro-social values around that bigger than self-thinking it's not just about me it's about the that about the whole world and how if we're all getting our needs met then what a what a better world uh, we might be living in. And um, I'm wondering, because you've talked about a few of the benefits of co-leadership, and I wonder if we can move into that again. Mm -hmm. what, is there anything we haven't covered or you haven't covered about what is the benefit of this co-leadership model? I think there are lots of benefits. And what's interesting, Sarah, looking at the problems and there's this like cultural um, baggage around co-leadership and one of the things is some people just assume it can never work for some people it is just alien concept um, I had a really interesting Twitter exchange with someone last week when I was sharing I'd been at a talk and they were like yeah but you do realize it'll never work because people don't want to share power mm. and it was a really interesting example of a, a, of a, a way of thinking and some people do think like that and we're not saying co-leadership is for everybody but there has been this sense that um one person has the book has to stop somewhere and this is often what boards are scared of is it's more complex if we you know it's more complex it's more complex to manage um but there's a huge amount of research out there it's been around since the 1960s as to does it work how does it work and what the benefits are so we can be really really clear about that um and there are commercial benefits. Mm. There's now studies that show public listed companies that have joint CEOs are more profitable. So lots of people say, oh, it's going to cost more. Actually, um, you know, and there's some detail on this I can share if it's relevant, but the cost of, of co-leadership doesn't have to be more. It can actually be cost neutral through job sharing or very marginal increase in cost. But the value is massive. Profits go up. We see higher levels of innovation. We see greater organisational stability, greater resilience. So if one leader is ill or incapacitated, you've got, you know, you've got some capacity there. So there's real examples of where if people have had to step away temporarily, there's been that capacity. Fundamentally, you can sum it up by two heads are better than one. That's often mm -hmm. quoted back because you've got wider range of experience, the other thing which Sara Wajid, who's one of the co-leaders um, at COCO at Birmingham Museum Trust, said, she said, it's not just two heads are better than one. She said, four shoulders are broader than two. And I think this really speaks to the, the inclusion agenda too. But this sense of um, that it's, it makes fundamentally we're broadening the talent pool. We know in the arts and cultural sector, too few people are accessing those leadership roles or are in them or staying in them. 
And what co-leadership fundamentally does is it broadens the talent pool. And we fundamentally need the best leaders. And at the moment, we're just too narrow in terms of diversity. So it's about broadening that talent pool by making co-leadership feel more inclusive, doable, accessible to a wider range of people. Yeah, and, and sharing the responsibilities, you say, I think the demands on cultural leaders is just so huge today. Um, so, for example, at, at the RSC, um, Justine and I, we came in and we had this shared responsibility for a major initiative. That was the main focus for our first six months in our roles. But then we've also led on different projects according to our expertise and our capacity. So with Justine coming from an artistic theatre background, she's led on some projects which are around being in dialogue with freelance artists, creating more equitable conditions for freelancers um, and also creating an inclusive rehearsal room culture. Uh, whereas I have led on the creation of the RSC's equity diversity, justice and inclusion strategy. Um, and what's emerged from that are a number of culture and systemic change projects. Um, and we're both witnessing a significant shift in real progress and confidence in the way that we talk about equity, diversity, justice and inclusion, because we bring that particular lens as well. So I think there's something around the benefits of co-leadership, of the the different voices, lived experiences and perspectives that are brought into an organization. Um, everybody's been hugely supportive and committed to change, but I think what's been quite challenging as well for us has been the fact that we are the only people of color on a senior leadership team. Um, and I think the benefit is around us that, that there's two of us. So there is something about, I suppose, leaning on each other's shoulders, you know, um, providing that moral, practical, emotional support in the context of, of change that is happening. Um, that feels significant. I think the other benefits are around, I mean, I've talked about having different voices. Um, it's about complementing each other as well when we're in the room, uh, when we're hearing things and, and reflecting and playing back what, what we're hearing. Um, there's something about the way in which we can complement what we're hearing. There's no right or wrong. It's more about um, reinforcing and, and building confidence as well in the conversation, sometimes quite difficult conversations that we have around, um, around change. So yeah, those are the further benefits mm. that I would add to what Claire's already shared. You just reminded me, Sandy, a couple of the interviews said they felt there was a real rigor as well. Having two people in that leadership role, that it was almost like a mini peer learning set. They were learning from one another. They were developing hugely in that role. And they were able to really challenge one another too. And you know, I think studies have also shown companies where you've got that built in, you, there is more accountability inbuilt in the system. So you're getting stronger yeah. leadership um, there from that. So you've got works really well for first time um, CEO. So a lot of the people in the case studies were new to leadership and it, and it was particularly useful for people who were first time in that role. But it seems to be, um, whereas being a solo leader, the responsibilities there in the co-leadership model, it's a much more developmental um, space and a much more collaborative and creative leadership space. Mm. Yeah, I think what, so what I'm hearing is 
there are benefits to the individual oh that's about getting their needs met feeling that they've got someone to lean against lean uh lean to feeling more confident because there's two of you two heads better than one that kind of thing there's also an organizational benefit so you talked about actually this could this can be more profitable um or there is evidence to say it's more profitable and I guess that there's also then about the mission of the organization and about the impact that organizations want to have that that can only then be of benefit because you've got those you've got different skills experiences you're not you're not having leaders who are completely burnt out burnt out try that again and you know have lost their creative imaginative resourceful skills because actually there's there's two people together I think it'd be about authority as well having more than one leader so I was interviewing last week a charity called Arts and Homelessness International um, mm. who you might know um, yeah. which is where when that charity was set up they they were very uncomfortable with the fact that um, there weren't lived experience voices in leadership and governance roles so they were committed to having 50-50 um, professional staff, lived experience professional staff on and governance. And they've used co-leadership as a way to make sure they have um, lived experience at the leadership and governance level. Um, and that's something about authority and being able to, you know, that's very important too. And another in, thing that co-leadership can enable. Mm. I'm just going to do a quick plug because we had Matt Peacock on. He was the first ever guest on Do Good and Do Well. And he talked about what they were trying to achieve around well-being. And a, and a kind of, I think it was about a flatter structure as well. I can't remember what the phrase is. But um, yeah, so go and listen to that because that's a good episode. So a lot of the people I work with are freelancers. And they've come into freelance because when they were in organisations, it felt too hard to get their needs met and so there was a, a shift there's been a transition into freelancing which meant perhaps they can choose their own hours perhaps you know you can go and collect the kids from school you can care um for parents it, it feels like an option that has a bit more flexibility and I I suppose I'd really be interested in hearing what are you noticing about that? Because the arts and cultural sector has a massive freelance workforce. And so how does co-leadership connect with freelancing? Yeah. So one thing I looked at was why do we have a lack of diversity? To, I, and I looked at ethnicity, disability and gender specifically. Why do we have a lack of diversity in leadership roles? And one of the things we picked up was it looks like, as far as you can tell from the data, that we have an over-representation of people of colour, women, particularly those with caring responsibilities and people with disabilities, chronic health conditions in the freelance sector for exactly the reasons you've described, Sarah. That, um, and then what happens is that it can be very hard if you so choose to apply for um, organisational leadership roles to be A, visible to executive search companies if you're freelance, um, uh, considered credible um, and to gain the organizational experience that maybe employers are looking for so there is a real 
issue around how becoming freelance might impact your future career progression, particularly because we can have sometimes, not always, but sometimes we can have quite poor practice around employment and um, recruiters or boards uh, have quite a narrow description of what they're looking for, where you might have gained equivalent experience. So one of the recommendations in, in the report is also to look at, and co-leadership doesn't necessarily um, solve this, but it comes up through the research that the, the recruitment practice, the tendency to overload organisational roles and expect that everybody to have like, the one recruiter called them kitchen sink job descriptions that you have to be able to do everything in one role yeah, and, we've all seen those. and also this expectation that you must have gained experience in an equivalent organizational role these are things that we've flagged up in the guidance that we've written for board about co-leadership is 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 a kind of a, a recommendation also to be a bit more inclusive in recruitment practice so that Quite a few of the candidates who are in those co-leadership role case studies actually came immediately from having been in freelance roles, mm -hmm. um, which is quite interesting. As I'm thinking of it, Sarah, I can think of quite a few of the ones I interviewed who were in freelance roles directly before co-leadership roles. Mm. Yeah, that, that I mean, I've, reflecting on the RSE's recruitment process for this leadership associate model that they they have pioneered the recruitment spec was so open um, and it was very much tailored to the skills and the experiences and context of whoever the successful candidates were going to be and how they might relate to the organization's priorities one of them being absolutely about being in closer dialogue with freelancers and about how we can create more equitable conditions for freelancers and even the kind of employment terms were really flexible again, to attract the broadest range of candidates that and could also appeal to freelancers. So that included mm -hmm. being part-time, which Justine and I are, um, being self-employed. Um, there were secondment options as well. So they were looking in terms of the way that the recruitment materials were designed and the narrative that was in the recruitment materials. They were looking for um, arts leaders who believe they can make a fresh contribution to the thinking and to the actions at, at the RSC. So it felt very open. And I feel like I was really encouraged to apply because it spoke to my interest. It didn't feel like a performative diversity hire. There was something about it being rooted in the change narrative of this, of this organization and it having a very open brief in the way that you wanted to work so I do think it appealed to freelancers um, and I wonder whether there's something we can learn from um, the design of those recruitment materials um, so that organizations can offer flexibility in employment terms um, mm -hmm. and it's fixed term that's the other thing it was initially fixed term for 12 months it's been extended by a year and I I really like that. It's it's almost like it gives us the option to think about, do we want to stay at the end of the 12 months or it, or it gives us the opportunity to exit? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think if we can really share those experiences, because what I'm hearing is it's something about the how. It's not, It doesn't feel like a tick box exercise because it's the the value what what matters is is communicated in the how things are done as well so you hear that there was real thought 
in how are we going to open this up to others and that and that different level of how you can access work it doesn't have to be full-time permanent forever and ever and ever you know what what are the other ways that that we can support people the the interview experience as well as the recruitment materials it felt very inclusive very compassionate and I remember in applying for the role you weren't asked for your standard covering letter. Actually, it was, you know, give us your responses to two questions. One was about what is your vision for the future of the RSC? And the second was around what skills and lived experiences would you bring? And I I didn't feel like I had to mold myself into the thing that I thought they wanted me to be. I just kind of rocked up as my big hearted, wholesome, authentic self. And I just loved how much how it made me feel very welcome and it was embraced. Mm. Um, and uh, that felt really good. It felt like a very positive experience, but also appreciate that might not be for everyone, um, yeah. you know, so, but I do I do feel like it was, I feel like I needed to share that because mm. it, it followed through, not just from the recruitment materials, but through the interview process as well. Yeah, it is that practical stuff though, isn't it? it yeah. that, that is what makes the difference. It's, um, being if you're a freelancer and you're going for a role being asked for a cv is really tricky because often you've worked with so many different organizations how do you all at the same time as well and how do you lay that out mold it into this more traditional um approach there are so many benefits we can hear that and but i'd love to move into the yeah buts yeah this is all (laughs) very well but you know what what might people be worried about with this model and and how what would you say to kind of address that overcome some of those those concerns it's interesting because I was thinking as you were saying that Sarah I think there's something about shifting your mindset as the board here rather than looking for this is what we need job description safe pair of hands we want this person to um, a more open conversation about this is the leadership we want and and really embracing what can we do to support them? Because I think too often the board see, let's appoint people to do it and they put all the risk on the the people they appoint. And actually what we're hearing in organisations that are thriving, that are using co-leadership well, is that there's much more of an active partnership between the board and between the executive leadership. There's a shift of really, and this is how it should be, a real leadership responsibility and the board are saying how do we support you to thrive here rather than than appointing the team and leaving them to deal with it so I think there's a bit of a mindset shift here for boards but I think the problem is boards will perceive some boards perceive this as higher risk particularly the risk that we're not quite sure who's accountable um, because we're a little bit unfamiliar with the model and what if they fall out? This is always the, the million dollar one. Is they, There might be one or two times where we've heard this went wrong and therefore we assume it's always going to go wrong. And, and there have been times when co-leadership has been brought in and both parties weren't brought into it and the relationship has broken down and it can be a nightmare. But there's actually, there's nothing to fear. There is so, it is so clear from the research how to do this well. Um, what you're looking for as a board, um, what what the share, you know, basically you're looking for shared values, shared vision, and the right skills to make it happen. 
you need to make sure that the roles are equitable. So, for example, you know, you couldn't have someone four days a week, somebody one day a week. You've got to have like equality of responsibility. Um, you can't force people into this. Both parties have got to really want to do it and have the self-awareness to do it well. And then you've got to make sure that you're you're treating people equitably as well for, and supporting people well. But it's it's actually really clear how to do this well. Theatre has been doing executive director, artistic director for 50 years. It can work really well. It's it's not rocket science. It might be new, but it, there is information there about how to do it well. But I think we have this tendency, because some people are a little bit sceptical about the ethos of power sharing, that if it ever goes wrong, that it's the model. Well, actually, I looked at four examples where it had gone hideously wrong, and I had really open, confidential conversations with the people involved, often more than one person in that scenario. And it was really clear that they hadn't followed the basic rules of how you should do this. It was really obvious why it had gone wrong. And it wasn't the model. It was the, the situation, that individual situation. But maybe because maybe because we, some people have this sense of it's doomed to fail. Human beings aren't, you know, there always has to be one person in charge. Some people believe that, so they, they expect it to be the model. And maybe because sometimes when it does go wrong, it's quite private why it went wrong, that relationship, and it's not in the public domain, so people don't have the full facts. And, and the other thing I've mentioned is, is people worry about the cost. And again, you know, maybe because that's not always terribly transparent, um, how much it's costing. Um, and interestingly, I, in the case studies, I looked at 11 new adopters of co-leadership and only one of them had actually been advertised on that basis openly. Two had been advertised, like Sandy said, on a really open basis. Um, but then people don't necessarily know what's happened and, and what the budget is and all of that. Um, the majority had either come about from some sort of internal reorganisation or they'd advertised for one person and realised, actually, we need two. Um, and it had been sorted out behind the scenes, or they'd advertised for one person and two people, like the case of Sarah and Zach at Birmingham, um, they'd applied for the role and said, take us. Mm -hmm. um, but it's actually not terribly transparent at the moment um, how the costings work, and it really doesn't need to cost any more. Most, most organisations are doing this on a cost-neutral or maybe 20%, 30% extra cost if they're job-sharing. But I think people think it's going to double your cost and it and it doesn't always. Um, in fact, it doesn't in most cases. Yeah, um, that's so brilliant, actually, because I think you're right, Claire, in terms of um, the barriers often sit within the board because of these perceived risks. It requires effort and energy to really unpack, be really honest about what those risks are. And let's not shy away from the potential conflict. Let's, it's almost like the contracting that you would do at the beginning of any project or any relationship or collaboration. You know, let's let's talk about what those questions are. Let's talk about if, if one of us disagrees, how might we resolve that? Um, and Claire has these brilliant resources and checklists and, and a roadmap that can help boards and guide boards through that process. Um, I think another barrier 
perceived barrier is around communication because often people say, but who's really in charge? Who's really making the decision? And so there has to be a shared understanding, as Claire said, there in, in the co-leadership model, you have real clarity about where um, your roles converge and where there's real clear split in responsibilities um, so that people know who is making what decision. And actually where there's the shared leadership, um, you take the decision that's been made by one of the leaders if you can't get them together. And you shouldn't necessarily expect them to be together all of the time, knowing that the other leader is going to back the leader who's made the decision. So there is something about trust. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of the barriers, as Clara said, are about mindsets and shifting mindsets. But then that also has to manifest in working practices as well and taking the time to explore those contracting questions of how we're going to set ourselves up for success. Um, and I've seen that done. I've seen that done, that kind of identifying the risks and, and, and setting that out as a matrix and being really open and honest about what we're going to do. I've seen that done really well, like through independent facilitation as well. And maybe that's what it takes to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. I, I was just thinking as well, you know, Claire, you said there are some examples of where co-leadership hasn't worked. It's been a bit of a nightmare. But I imagine between us, we could come up with also a lot of um, situations where just having one leader has been an absolute nightmare as well. <laughs> and actually, what is um, what's the risk to not think about having a different mindset? What's the cost to not being open minded to this kind of model? Um, to uh, I think, it, yeah, that shift in thinking. And I guess it starts with a conversation. Like, what could this look like in our organisation? I do think my advice to, you know, if you're interested in in pursuing co-leadership, and I've been coaching quite a few people who are applying for co-leadership roles at the moment, where it's not been advertised on that basis and they're trying to make the case. And what, you know, very much like what Sandy's just said is, anticipate some of the things people might be concerned about and show that you've already thought about them and that you've already discussed them so the one question boards will have is well what if one of them goes how do we manage we want two of them what if one of them goes it might be three actually um so have discussed up front how long are we committing to um in this role what would we do if one of us left um how are we going to handle it if we disagree who's going to lead on what how do we want to communicate with other people or how do we suggest we do that? So I've just worked with a group of three co-artistic directors and they've drawn like a Venn diagram that shows this is what we all do. This is what each of us leads on and brings. This is our shared values. This is how we're going to handle communication. They're all part time. So it'll be this is how we're going to manage the practicalities of communication. And they've just set it out in a one page summary. But I think it answers a lot of the the questions that the board have had. So you just show that you've already thought about these things. And of course, you need to keep these under review. So as mm -hmm. part of their preparation, I'm facilitating them thinking about these things. But the, what I'm suggesting and working with co-leaders who were already a bit further down the line is we just, as an external facilitator, you help them reflect on what's working well, um, how might we need to change how we're working? How are other people finding communicating with you? So it's just about keeping these things under review. And the chair can do that. And in, you know, in some of the case studies, the chair very much does do that. 
and sometimes they're working with external coaches to help them. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I in terms of adding to that question of, you know, if anyone is interested in this, I mean, it's absolutely turned to Claire's <laughs> research. There's a body yeah. of research, um, practice and case studies, yeah, on the okay. co-leadership library I just love the fact that it's called a library as well um talk to other co-leaders out there I mean everyone is so generous um I feel like I've benefited from, from so much wisdom and insights from people like Parminder Dosanj and Sajida Carr at Creative Black Country Zach and uh, Sarah at Birmingham Museums Trust um just yeah look look around you who else is doing it um Tamara Harvey and Daniel Evans are obviously modeling, modeling it here at the at the RSC. Um, and maybe there's something about opening up a conversation with your board. You know, what do they need to build their awareness, their understanding, their confidence in navigating um, and understanding co-leadership, but also perhaps then navigating the leadership transition that will inevitably happen. It's almost like, OK, let's really talk about that and what do we need to put in place? Yeah. That's one of the things I've been doing at the moment is actually talking to boards as well and helping connect chairs with other chairs who've got experience. Because one of the things I found in the in the research is that boards are much more likely to have a go at this if either they're familiar with the individuals or they've got some familiarity with the model, um, which makes total sense. So, for example, um, there's a board of an organisation who who've got co-leaders starting in a few weeks' time, and I've connected them with chair of an organisation who's been running for three to four months on that model, so they can really talk about the practicalities. Like, how often are you meeting them? How often are you reviewing things? Are you doing your performance reviews together or separately or a combination of the two? And I think because we're transitioning from this norm of solo leaders to two or three people there's just a little bit of figuring out how do we do how do we do this how do we make decisions how do we keep that accountability and, and connecting people with their peers feels really helpful and I, I really noticed that in the interviews when I was talking to the co-leaders they were saying oh I really want to know how so-and-so is doing it in this organization so I connected the case study co-leaders together and we're actually looking to do some work in the autumn. So there's another person who's really interested in co-leadership who hosted a seminar in um, Exeter in, in March called Professor Kira Eastall. Um, and mm. Kira and I are going to be running an action learning set for co-leaders to kind of come together. Because I just think it's a brilliant model for thinking through how to want to approach it, but also getting a bit of guidance from your peers as to what they're mm -hmm. doing in these situations just as we're figuring out these new ways of doing things and also that transition period because I think some organizations are definitely experiencing a little bit of resistance and a little bit of transition around moving from we used to do it like this we're, we're figuring it out and as Sandy said not everybody's got all the solutions in advance and, yeah. and you can't possibly so it's about learning as we go along I just keep thinking having someone else by your side it, whether it's action learning peer learning coaching just to be able to facilitate some of those conversations we're going to bring the conversation to a, a close we've talked about 
you know, what is it? We've talked about the benefits. We've talked about your individual experiences, what you've witnessed and what the yeah buts and how people can overcome them. If people are listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I really want to have a conversation with Claire. I want to have a conversation with Sandy. How do they connect with you? How do they find you? I'm on Twitter at Read with Sandy. Yeah, send me a message, send me a DM. That's probably one way. And then you can get me on my email as well. Um, so Sandy with a Y, kmahal at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah, and I created the co-leadership library, which is is kind of a compilation of all, all the resources I've come across, I've published, but also anything else anyone else has done that I've found. I've, I've stuck it all up there on a free website and it includes the the user guide to co-leadership, which I've created, which has got advice to boards, as well as to potential co-leaders and stuff like if you need to make a case to the board, there's a, a summary of the research you can um, hit them over the head with. Um, but yeah, I'm on Twitter at Claire Ant and people can just email me through my website, which is just my name.com and really happy to have like an informal chat with people who are interested or boards who are interested as well as doing the kind of more formal consultancy support or coaching support with people and lots of people are getting in touch mm. uh, which is brilliant because I am compiling more and more case studies of what people are doing and how people are doing it and sharing that um, via the co-leadership library. Mm, amazing and I will make sure to put all of those links in the show notes as well so that you can access them Sandy Claire thank you so much for sharing your time with me this morning this feels like a really important discussion to have um so let's keep talking about it thank you very much thank you it's been a real pleasure thank you for inviting us Sarah A massive thank you to Sandy and Claire for joining me in that conversation. There is so much more to talk about when it comes to co-leadership and I would really urge you to read that research that Claire has put together as well as the guides if this is something that you are interested in and share, share it more widely. We need radical shifts in the way that we are working check out the links in the show notes. Do let me know what you think of this episode. I would love to hear your thoughts and take very good care.